Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Minvu Lee, who is the head of product at Do Dreams, a Helsinki-based mobile games company. Minu's career in gaming started in Korea about 20 years ago, when he was designing microtransactions into online games. His career took him to Europe and eventually to work in the Finnish games industry. I was just talking to Minu before the holiday break. We both have a passion about game design through understanding the player motivations, aspirations and career goals. We'll now share more about these topics with you. Hey people, I have some news to share with you. We're going to start a free webinar series on raising investor money for a gaming startup. It's going to be a live webinar with a presentation from me, and then the participants will have lots of time to ask questions and get detailed answers. Just go to elitegamedevelopers.com slash webinar, and you'll be able to sign up for the next webinar. I'm so excited about this webinar series because it enables me to share more of the help that I can give out to the people and not just the developers who are living here in Helsinki. Now all you need to do is to go sign up at elitegamedevelopers.com slash webinar and you'll get your answers to your investor questions. Hi Minu, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Joachim. I'm really glad to be here and thank you for the invitation. Yeah, super happy to share what we have in mind for today. We were like bouncing around the ideas a bit, what we would talk about. And this is something that I haven't really been covering enough on the podcast, talking about like this kind of like game design in-depth thoughts and what are good practices regarding like how game design should be evolving with teams. So. Let's kick it off, but I wanted to hear, like, how did you make your way into the game industry back in the day? Yeah, that's really interesting. Very first question. So I came from Korea. So really long time ago, in early 2000, I got started my first job when I won some of the game scenario competition that the government actually hold held. And I started as a free-to-play system designer at that time, although this free-to-play is something that I think in Western industry, the designers actually created. But it was not that serious job or work because I didn't graduate my university. And I was just thinking about making some pocket money and, you know, for surviving or living. But then it ends up becoming my career after. So it was kind of accidentally started. I didn't intend to be a game designer or game developer. What were the first games that you worked on back in the day? So at that time, there was still a single-play package game in the market. So I started some PC development. It's like, a, you know, those bubble-bubble shooter games that mm. Konami created, like 80s game. So it is kind of PC version of it. And we tried to make it as an online multiplayer version. And then we didn't. But immediately, we jumped into the free-to-play online game, PC platform. Right. Do you recall kind of like those moments when you were first like thinking about this kind of like game economy, free to play, 
systems there? Like, what were the early stages like there? Yes. So in Korea, the online was already quite huge and very popular because there was already MMORPGs in, in the main genre at that time. My main goal at that time, why I took this wiki-play kind of economy and mechanic was because of the installs. So I really tried to boost the numbers of installs for free so that we can actually try to deliver some microtransaction system inside the game if we have a lot of users. So that was the very first idea. And later, mm -hmm. uh, we came up with some items like a clothes or songs or some patch, you know, all those in-game things in the microtransaction system. So I think that was the very first moment, even without thinking about free-to-play economy or mechanic, but we really did need a lot of installs. That was cool. Thinking about those kind of like days in Korea when you were working in the industry, you later on moved to Europe to work here yes. in the industry. What are the big characteristic differences between Korean and European game developers? I think even now, the Korean development culture is very different from any other country, even in Asia, also different from Japan or China, because, okay, of course, we are heavily influenced by top-down hierarchy that we actually learned from Japan or America. But then there is another additional culture, quite traditional culture. It's more like a working late. It's not about working hard or working well, but working late. <laughs> so a lot of our managers at that time thought that if you really work late, stay in your chair and you know, at your desk for a long time, and they thought you are doing well. So that's a very <laughs> mixture of the culture, like a top-down hierarchy, plus really dedicated to work late. And I still remember I used to work more than 100 hours per week without any clear goal and why. And everyone wasn't convinced before anyone left first. If everyone is in the on on uh, in, in their like place, then they couldn't actually leave their desk. So it was very weird culture, but that happened. And I still think some of the still small country uh, companies in Korea, uh, they still had similar uh, cultures and you know the behavior. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> and compared to Europe, so I went to UK two thousand six or seven. And very first thing I noticed is that it's more about agile and bottom-up and that the developers have more autonomy and decision-making based on the responsibility. So it was quite two extremes that I have been experiencing in two different game industries. Yeah, and like Finland, you probably noticed that we don't really do 100, <laughs> 100 hours. <laughs> no, we are talking about some... How much, how many, like 38, 37 hours at the moment. Personally, I believe that as a game developer, personally, I cannot focus, fully focus more than six hours or five hours. So those five to six hours per day is kind of my maximum hours for the creativity. Mm. And maybe plus one more hour for discussion, meetings, checking the emails, you know, mm. researching some references, looking at the data. But I truly believe that as a game developer, four, five hours working time is kind of maximum yeah. to maximize your creativity and productivity. Yeah. You've now worked in three companies, in Rovio, EA, and now at Do Dreams in Finland. Is that yes. Correct? Yes, in Finland. Yes. Thinking about like game development in Finland, have you noticed anything that makes Finland special 
Yes, a couple of words I have in mind. So the first thing I noticed significantly different from any other games industry, mainly compared to US because I've been working at EA, which is an American company. So the very first word I have in mind is quick and nimble. So we don't, we didn't need a huge team to actually prototype something fun. We don't need a huge live team to operate like a, like hundreds of millions of business. Uh, like a Supercell examples or any other small or medium or large studios in Finland, for one product, team size is about 10 to 15 because I believe that F10 to 15 people in the same team, we cannot keep the same vision and same culture in the mm-hmm. development team. So yeah. quick and nimble, autonomy, or the goal-oriented decision-making over execution, those are all coming from the smaller team size. And that's very much like a different from any other game team in the different countries. Mm. Do you think we can still produce games at the same pace when we have a smaller team? I think pace, the speed and pacing is a bit different from ends up like uh, what value we can deliver. So from my work, I really try to focus on the value delivery over execution. And of course, we should have a certain deadline to fulfill our business score. However, if you go to China or Korea, we cannot compete with them in terms of the speed of the execution. So in terms of execution-wise, you are right that I think we cannot compete with them. But delivering the value is more and more important than just execute the task. So later, when we have a full product, like one year later, six months later, or two years later, we should have a really good quality and the value to the customer, which is our players. If you really execute very fast, it could give a very immediate impact on your business. But for long term, mobile games is about the following the place journey for the next five years at least. So for that, I still think delivering the value is more important than execute very, very quickly. This is where we get into the meat of the discussion because I really wanted to talk about this like value creation for the player. <laughs> and uh, yes, I, yes. I truly believe it comes from knowing proper game design and turning all the stones and looking at all the things that the player wants and needs to feel I, satisfied. So I agree. Thinking about like in a critical situation, how do you think that game design? is done well. What is critical for you? So a long time ago, and of course, including me and my friends at that time, we always thought that I have a really great idea and I want to make this game because it will be super fun. Mm. So I think after this free-to-play era, uh, it has been changed that we should understand and align that we are making games for the players. So players with a very clear goal. So I was asking most of the time to the designers or product-related people or team, whenever we come up with a new game design or idea, then my first question is why? So why we are doing this? Why do we believe that this is truly a fun game for the players? And why the players from our competitor will leave the competitor game and will join our game with what kind of reason? So all those kind of why questions should be answered and delivered to the team. And I believe that game design has a very critical role to understand and spread this kind of knowledge within the team. So mm-hmm. for that sense, I still believe this why question, more market and customer-oriented mindset. It's not new, but 
sometimes it's very difficult to you know adapt and, and influence this kind of mindset change to the designers. So that is my number one mission all the time in very recent years in Finland. Can you give an example regarding the why statement? So for example, if you want to make another Archero, so let's take this Archero as an example because that's one of my favorite games in this year. <laughs> so let's take this Archero. So to me, Archero is a really, really great made prototype game. It is lacking a few things like a live service, like long-term meta games and long-term progression, but it is performing really well. It's a fun game. And I know that at least a couple of studios and team in Finland and in Helsinki wanted to make this kind of success, but with a better innovation and with a better version. So at this point, I would ask to the team if I were to do this Archero, next Archero project, I'm not interested in what kind of fun, what kind of innovation first, because I would like to ask first why. Why do we believe that we will be better than Archero? What kind of trust, what kind of discovery we already have in our prototyping, for example? Why we believe this new Archero game or new Archero type of game will be much better than the current Archero? And what is the unfulfilled need and requirement that Archero players doesn't, you know, players don't have? And how do we fulfill that kind of need and requirement in our prototype? So there are a lot of why questions and, you know, all these kind of critical questions requires answer before any implementation or coding, in my opinion. So in design pillar or core design document or vision, you should be able to answer those why questions. Mm. Yeah, I guess that is even more critical when you're going into a gaming genre where there's already competition. Yes. You need to bring in something that matters for the player. Yeah. Maybe one more example is something like Prelink's games came up with like Gardenscape or Homescape. So we all know that Match 3 Jungle was so crowded a few years ago. And nobody wanted to try it except a few big companies who has big UA money. And we thought that IP or character style or visual style would be a differentiation factor. But later, Prelink's guys come up with a hybrid game, hybrid Match 3. So Match 3 is just a core mechanic. But why players keep playing this game and progress further is because their aspirational goal is not about match three completionists, but they want to fix the problem in your garden or mm. you know and build more on your garden. So more aspirational goal actually merged with this core mechanic. So that kind of approach is really clever, and we should be able to answer the core question like why. And then they came up with the good games and examples. So that's another example I want to just highlight. Mm. For the decision makers and stakeholders in these gaming companies, people who are not necessarily sitting in the game team, yes. what is the kind of like the fundamental knowledge that these people should have regarding game design? So first of all, in my theory, if you have to decide really important things about the game or about game product or production, I think that person should be in the team. And I know that stakeholders are oftentimes like, you know, you know, those business partners and not like hands-on role. But first of all, I still believe they have to understand the game and all, all the team's strengths and the capability first. But the one thing I highlight here is that understand why players will play this game with the core mechanics, what's the core motivation and why, what makes them keep playing. And then they oftentimes have to decide the priority. For example, the crucial role as a product lead is making sure that what is more important than others so that the feature prioritization should be shared 
you know, uh, they should understand clearly what it is. And maybe the last thing is that they should be able to articulate the designs and idea as a one core structure so that the team and the stakeholders uh, fully understand why they are doing this and how to articulate their games in a few sentences, for example, so that they clearly understand the map and the game mechanic as well. I really wanted to bring this up because I know for a fact that if things go smoothly, numbers are looking good. The yeah. team, it doesn't need to go outside of the team to have understanding yes. about the design. But when there are numbers that aren't satisfying, that yes. need improvement, maybe they need improvement for six months of extra work, you go into the discussion that you need to talk with the management, maybe even the board needs to hear the ideas and the issues that the game is having, and then they need to have you know, some kind of education in this area. That's absolutely true. So I'm not saying that someone like board or management team's decision was always right or wrong or bad or good, but it really requires the market data. It shouldn't be based on the person's assumption, like, I don't like it or I like this type. It should mm-hmm. be based on the market data and we should prove all the unknowns before we take any kind of actions. Yeah, that is true. Going from there, what we discussed together a lot is this PENS model, which is the player experience of need satisfaction. I think constructed by Scott Rigby uh, yes. from Immersive. Can you talk about that and how you think it relates to making a successful mobile game? Yeah, I actually have three bullet points, like how to define whether your game design or your game is good or not in terms of this progression satisfaction. So there are three key questions I would ask to the team or asking myself. How meaningful it is? And how much of it do I get per minute of play? And how long does it last? So for the first statement, how meaningful it is, players will play games for many reasons. But then those many reasons actually has one common thing. It's a motivation. So I truly believe that the first priority or the most important thing, why player playing this game is because it fulfills their motivation. So how meaningful it will be is the one key question for this satisfaction. And then second thing, how much of it do I get per minute of gameplay? So in game world, it's relatively much shorter than the real life. In real life, if I want to be a super nice pro hockey player, it will take, I don't know, maybe 10 years or 11 years a lot of years and practice I have to do it so that I finally became become a pro ice hockey player. In NHL game, you can win the Stanley Cup or you know, you can be the MVP of the league in a pretty much short amount of time. So in game world it's kind of miniature of the real time world. So it really matters how much of it do I get or even minute per minute gameplay. So mm. as a designer, we can cleverly set those kind of minute to minute to daily, weekly, monthly experience into the game. And last thing, how long does it last? I found myself that if I look at the new free-to-play game, I tend to calculate how many hours or how many days I would like to play this game and potentially how much money I want to spend in this game and I decide whether I play or not. So Mm -hmm. how long does it last is very important. And oftentimes I notice from some of the old Finnish games that they have a start and the end, even though it's a free-to-play game. So yeah. how long does it last? The important answer, I think the right answer is indefinite. 
So if we could make <laughs> an indefinite gameplay loop and uh, progress, that would be great. But in real world, it's impossible. So I also inspired by Supercell guys that when they make the game, they make the game that would last at least five years. So that's the days that 1,825 days that the players will, you know, take their journey for that long amount of time. Yeah, the whole satisfaction of seeing progress is what keeps the player coming back, right? Yes. So in other words, able to set their career goals in the game. So why are the players engaging with feature or game system in a different time frame? It's all about to fulfill their career goals. And as we have a real life, they could set up multiple different career goals in the game. Mm. Talk about this a bit more. Let's do a deep dive on the player career goals. What does that mean and how can it be used in design? So what I have discussed with the developers and the team last time is the career goals, I think it's about the story that the players can tell while they are playing games. So I'm not talking about story-driven game or narrative, but players should be able to create their own story and their own career in the game. So each player is able to set small or large scale of the goals, but that's their aspirational. So if the game promotes their aspirational goal in very early stage, that's a really successful, I think. They will be very successful uh, free to play game because that will fulfill their whole motivation. I can't take ice hockey, for example, because I'm talking about this in Helsinki. And for example, if you want to be an ice hockey player, or if you are interested in ice hockey in general, you can start from being an ice hockey player. Then the next goal, maybe you play better, so you can play in a pro hockey team. And next goal will be you are already a pro hockey player, so your next goal will score 100 goals or 1,000 scores in your career. And you got like a lot of goals, then your next motivation is actually win the championship trophy instead in you know, NHL, so I mean the semi-cup. And then maybe your aspirational final goal is you became a national, you know, the hockey player and you will win the national competition, for example. So those kind of step-by-step goals, not only one or two, there could be a multiple career goals, but depends on your situation. So it depends on your behavioral kind of thinking. You can set different career goals in different time frame. And in general, those are the really like career goals that you want to progress this game, not only a few days, but multiple months or even multiple years. So in a sense, like in a game like Clash Royale, when you unlock arenas, you're yeah. progressing yes. your career goals. Yeah. In Clash Royale, for example, you are collecting units by card and you are stacking it, upgrade. You go further to the next arena again and again. When you reach to the late last arena, that's not the end of your journey, but your journey just started because you want to compete in the leaderboard. You want to see the see your name and position in, in a higher rank, etc. So all those kind of framework and structure is well made, I think, in Crash Royale. Yeah, and then you go into the social elements, the clan aspect, yes. and you have more goals, career goals yes. coming up. Yes. Then thinking about core gameplay and meta design for like a an effective game economy how does it relate back to the core gameplay what the player is doing minute by minute i think it's not like linear path but it's a loop so i actually articulated as a 
core loop uh, all together with core gameplay, meta games, and economy, and etc. Because first, you play very intuitive and very fun core game again and again, and then progress something in your meta game or in your progression to achieve your aspirational goals that I just explained. It can be anything very meaningful and fulfill if it fulfills players' motivation. Mm. And then all those resources and items and currencies you gain from your core gameplay will directly influence to your economy. So you get less, you get more, depends on your performance and your length of the gameplay, also the time that you spend in the game. And those resources will be needed to progress and upgrade further and you become more powerful and you got more things. Then you can think about how to form your like a game economy based on all those gaining and the expenses. But why players play the meta games and core games at the same time? Because they want to see three things, I think. So they want to be the best. They want to be very unique. And they want to be recognized by others, which is a social aspect. So those mm. are the very three generic kind of humans' instincts or instinction or you know humans' core motivation. So in order to achieve that, those core game meta game shouldn't be divided, but it should be inside the core loop so that you play something really fun, you enjoy. As a return, you gain something and you invest that in your meta games and the progression. And those progression will give you more chance to win more better or in the core game. So those are the actually entire like infinite loop together. Yeah. Then you tie that back into a game like Clash Royale, which has a high skill-based factor that each match improves your skill and that continues for thousands of matches and yeah, exactly. Or something like a more traditional RPG growth, like Summoner's War, that you spend more time and resource. So you are becoming better and better eventually. Mm. So there are many growth types in the games that I think I'll explain uh, uh, later when there's more questions. Yeah. I think this is like super important then to go into the common problems that yeah. you can have in free-to-play game design. There is a lot of like these examples out there, but can you give some clear issues that people can have in these economy-based games? Yeah, I mean, the first thing we should keep in mind is that there's no such a perfect template or balance or even the definition how we should do in economy. It really depends on the genre, type of game, and your intention, whether you want to give more generous reward or you want to make the economy very tight. And further, you should also consider whether you really need a good revenue at the moment by tightening the economy or you should avoid a poor retention so you can give out more and educate players that, hey, there are something really cool things always happen you do this action so that mm. they keep coming back again and again so your lifetime value will be increasing, so something like that. Surprisingly, not many designers consider everything like this but we have a very specific designers and designer role only looking at the smaller part of the game design, especially in AAA. So for example, gameplay designer or 3C designer who is caring about control, character, and camera, or mm. economy designer, system designer, content designer. There are so many like level designers. But the beauty of the mobile free-to-play game, in my opinion, as a designer, is that a designer or designers should take care of almost every aspect of what I just mentioned. So in terms of the free-to-play game design, the challenge is that 
you have to be a kind of generalist who knows almost everything about the core game, economy, meta game, and system. But then there are a lot of things that you just commonly forget or only focus on one thing because there should be a good balance so that you shouldn't be focusing on too much. On, for example, if I have to increase ad revenue by more ad impression and all the ad placement, then oftentimes it will cannibalize in-app purchase. If you want to focus on fully in-app purchase mechanics or features, then sometimes you forget about ad placement and ad impression and rewarded ad, the value of the rewarded ad. So everything should be balanced. And another example I have seen in Finnish games, which is a really great game, sometimes I found that there is always spending cap. So the game, actually, I progress the game and play the game really well. And at a certain point, I don't need to spend my money or mm. I don't even spend my soft currency anymore. I'm already at top. And that game is still fun. So I keep playing the game. But as a developer, I think it could be much better in terms of the economy design so that we can expand more spending caps so that there are more spending and more enjoyable experience and more delightful values that players can enjoy. Yeah. I think when you get into having some kind of like live events and updates that can go and fix the issues there in the later stages of the game, but it's, it is tricky to launch with a game that can immediately sustain the player for five years. <laughs> it is true. And it will be only proved by the data, not by the assumption. And I mean, the question is about what is the common problem in games economy, then how to improve it. But I think the only answer at the moment I highly recommend is be more friendly and familiar with the data. So data is absolutely one of the really important tools that you can utilize and answer these kind of questions. Yeah, that is so true. What other kind of pitfalls and problems that game designers can face when they're trying to come up with something new and innovative, especially in free-to-play? What do you see there? Yeah, in free-to-play games, mobile or PC or console, it's very important, very unlike traditional game design. Designers should be also caring about the product strategy and the business strategy because the free-to-play game mechanic is really based on the behavioral economy and the behavioral science. So if you do not align with the product goal and product strategy, even though your game is super fun, But that doesn't mean this is a well-made, well-designed free-to-play game. I still think there's a really core fun that every game could have, including free-to-play game. But without product strategy alignment, it can be just a, a good game, not like a lucrative, you know, the game that brings the lucrative business. So mm -hmm. I just repeating my previous comment that sometimes it's really difficult to answer those product strategies, such as why do we make this game? Why do we believe that this new game is fun and Businessly very successful. And who are our competitors in the market? Are they existing? If they are existing, then why do we believe that we can be better than them? Why those competitor games player will quit and come to our game? And what is the unfulfilled need? So those are the questions that the designer oftentimes either didn't ask or completely forget or did not align very well with the product person or product lead. So nowadays, those are the questions before I came up with a fun idea. But then those market awareness and market trend and all those understanding of it is quite crucial. So in short, prove unknowns before making a game or making a yeah. prototype. Those are very important steps. Yeah, this is super important. It's like if you leave something unproven, you know, something that is still like, hey, we're figuring it out 
one yeah. year and one and yeah. a half years later, that might be super risky. Yeah. So making a new game, we need to prove it. And we need to prove it by digital prototyping or paper prototyping sometimes. Mm. Depends right. on the game genre. But then the biggest thing I always emphasize is in prototyping period, we are not making a game. We are proving that here's unknowns and we prove that this is going to be solved like that way or this way. So I think that's a very different mindset that, you know, open times prototyping means making a full perfect game, but that's not possible in this free-to-play world. So prove what is, so like list all the hard questions and unknowns and prove unknowns one by one is one of the good way to prototype your game. Mm, That is true. Hey, let's go to some game developer hot seat questions. Are you okay. ready? Yes, yes, please go ahead. Which of these is more of an interesting game for you? Clash Royale or Clash of Clans and why? So the answer really depends on who you are asking, right? <laughs> so to me, Clash Royale is definitely more favorite game that I spent a lot of time compared to Clash of Clans. The only main reason is because the Clash Royale is really fit to my life cycle and my behavior, everyday behavior, because I don't have much time to play game due to my family and I have to play with my daughter more than I play the video games nowadays. So short game session, but really like a good rewarding system in Clash Royale really give me a satisfaction and also motivation to play this game even though only 15 minutes or 20 minutes, because even though I play one or two games in Clash Royale, that gives me enough something to progress further. And I don't actively play Clash Royale this year, but last year I played it quite actively and my career goal was actually reached to the highest arena, which was impossible. Mm. So I tried <laughs> to collect some of the card upgrade you know, units that I really liked. So this game actually gave a really good opportunity to play shortly, but still meaningful rewards and the progress is given. Yeah, it is so cool. I picked it up as well after a year of not playing just last year. Yeah. And then I started learning again, like how I counter the other cards Yeah. with my favorite deck. And yeah. it took like a few months and then I was like just flying through the arenas until yes. I hit this cap of, hey... Let's put some money down. <laughs> yes, yes. Can you explain why somebody would rather pick Clash of Clans and what could be the underlying motivations there? Yeah, I think this question already kind of answers because the player has a different motivations and some of the players, they see their aspirational goal in Clash Royale, oh, sorry, the Clash of Clans. And compared to Clash Royale, Clash of Clans has more longer-term pacing and longer-term progression. And especially the social aspect of the Clash of Clan is much stronger than Clash Royale. And these socials and social activities requires more hours than just playing one game in Clash Royale. So if you are fully into this build and battle perspective or build and battle, build and battle motivation, then this is definitely a better game than mm. the Clash Royale in terms of the core motivation. So... I don't know exactly who would be the segments and what's the core motivation under that segment in Clash of Clans. But as we already defined this Clash of Clans as a build and battle or sometimes 4X jungle, so it requires more kind of hardcore gameplay experience and also social aspect and also 
more meaningful, very longer term motivation. It was four years ago or three years ago, I saw the data that in Clash of Clans, their two years retention was about 20%. So I <laughs> remember I saw it from some, I don't know, some data conference or some, you know. So I didn't have chance to check if it is true or not. But there is a really high expectation that the longer term motivation and experience are really good in Clash of Clans. So it's all about the motivation. And I'm pretty sure that there is a very clear motivation that uh, the Supercell guys actually figured out and then they utilize it to build their features and live events and all the things. Good point. What is the most interesting new game that you've seen in the recent years and, and why? So I have seen one very strong trend and I like three games in this year. So since 2017, I have noticed that I don't remember the exact number, but among the top 20 grossing games in 2017 and 2019, it's clearly noticed that the hybrid games and hybrid genres are growing up. So hybrid means some established core mechanic plus different approach of the meta game or progression. A Merge Dragon is the best example, and I like this Merge Dragon the most last year. So this is like a traditional Merge 3 or Match 3 mechanic. And then combined together with a basement building aspirational with a dragon character. So you actually merge the items and then you actually collect a dragon egg and then dragon egg will provide you dragons. So this is very casual game, but a lot of great play mechanics in the hybrid genre or hybrid category. So I don't think this is just a merge free game, but this is a one of the good examples how and why these hybrid games are actually taking over the growth chart at the moment. Another good example is, I told you again that this uh, Prelinks game, like Gardenscape or, or Homescape, so those are not just only traditional match three games, but they actually put these aspirational meta games within the core mechanic. So those are the one trend, one significantly important trend I would recommend to take a look at. And for the games, I watched the videos and I read the article about 3A. So 3A standing for Archero, which is like a really great PvE prototype, and Auto Chess, so really good casual hardcore, and then AFK Arena, so one of the best RPG at the moment, which has tons of the innovative free-to-play mechanics. So to my team, I always recommended Archero AFK Arena and this Auto Chess for the research purpose. Three A's, got to remember them. <laughs> yeah, it's not me, but some articles started to call them as a three A. I don't remember who. That is cool. Hey, if you could pick a dream team to make a free-to-play game, what yes. kind of roles would you have there? So I was thinking this a lot, and considering I have been experiencing in Rovio or EA recent years, I recall that we should be just all game developer. I mean, there should be a discipline, of course, like designers, artists, and programmers, and, you know, all the roles, actually. But when we prototype and start a new project, we need a good team. A good team is able to make a good game, and, you know, good game makes money. So all the best developers, in my opinion, are capable to design and evaluate if it is fun or not, instead of just doing the programming or drawing art. So I really value that if a team or a person or the developer is fully capable to discuss about the design or discuss about the game economy, discuss about the product vision and, and etc., and fully able to evaluate them, 
together. And that's kind of my dream team. So that I don't need to only, you know, focus on design or other technical aspect, but everyone equally discuss and share and align together. So when there is a very serious design challenge or discussion, if team is able to discuss and potentially align together, I believe the result is much better than the one superstar guy just decided everything. So I really value in terms of the role that all developers are capable to to adapt this kind of design mindset. Mm. So it goes down to like when you're doing the hiring decision for your team, you need to pick people who want to be involved and use their mental capacity to think about the fun. Yes, fun and some design mindset, designer mindset. So definitely that is going to be a huge plus. If I want to work together with somebody, then I would ask all these, like being a designer or designer mindset question. And of course, it doesn't matter if the guy has a really good technical kind of skill or artistic skill, and then not that much interest in design. It's absolutely fine. But if the good programmer or good artist has these kind of designs in mind, and I believe that makes them become a really great like a game developer altogether because we should work together. And this design discussion is always like uh, there. It's like an infinity amount of discussions of the design we have to do every day. Mm. It is the purpose for the team really to be there. Yeah, indeed. Can you talk about the worst 24 hours in your career in gaming? This is super interesting. So I was thinking like, why worst 24 hours? Because my answer here will be like worst five weeks time <laughs> because there are so many experience, but I want to share this on purpose. There was a one time, I think it was in Korea, that I had to do some crunch for five weeks. So this five weeks means really five weeks, like a, no coming back to home, no Saturday, no Sunday, you know, just 35 days, like straightforward, just working, only except sleeping time, have to work or not, and which was quite common and could be okay. However, the reason that I think it was worse because it was without clear goals. So the team is working almost five weeks crunch time without a clear goal. And at the end of the five weeks, nobody knows what we have achieved because there was no goals. So we actually spent five weeks for nothing. And even the CEO or product lead had no idea what we are supposed to achieve. And then after five weeks, nothing was given. We just had tons of art, code, and really big amount of design document and spreadsheet. But that was it. <laughs> so I just recall that was one of my good experiences to understand. Yeah. <laughs> so, hey, let's get into some final questions here. What is okay. your favorite book and why? I used to read a lot of books when I was young. So it is very difficult to only come up with one book. But in Asia, there is a really like a steady seller called The Three Romance of the Three Kingdoms. I think you have heard about this book mm. and the game. Yeah. So this is based on the real Chinese history, like thousands of years ago. The reason that I really like this book and learning from the book a lot is because there are a lot of personalities and very interesting behaviors that a lot of characters actually behave. So this is really good to observe, even though they are really old people, like a thousand years ago, and you know historical Chinese people. But then there are a lot of things to observe and learn from their behavior. And yeah, of course, they are not a game players, but 
because there are hundred, more than hundreds or almost thousands of the different characters in this book. And those characters show very different behavior. And that sometimes helps me a lot to understand and what to observe and how to learn the player's behavior. And this is one of the books. Anyway, even for the pure fun, I highly recommend really masterpiece of those Asian or Chinese historical books. Wow. Yeah, I have to check that out. Do you have a story that has shaped how you approach your work today? My number one goal or rule, which I sometimes forget and I don't do it very well even now, is listening others. So I think designers or creative people tend to have their really great idea they want to share immediately. They want to speak and they want to share, they want to pitch the nice idea because that's our, you know, the creative people's kind of tendency to do that. But what I found after all is that the listening is more important than speaking, even if you have a good idea first. So for the designers and the creative people or product people, I would always recommend if the team has some idea, listening first, and then it's not too late to react and decide after the listening. So the one story is that I was invited to the interview before I went to UK. So it was one of the UK's like a games company. And then I was interviewed in some designer position. And at that time, I didn't speak English very well because it was just, I was in Korea. There were not many chances to speak in English. So during the interview, I had to listen carefully because I couldn't speak much. Mm. And then the interviewer, who was the design lead, actually interviewed many of my colleagues as well, who was more senior and has more skill set than me. But he picked me and later time, he shared his experience that I was the only one who was listening first. <laughs> and oh, then I luckily picked nice. by him. And then later they realized that I don't fluently speak English. So they had to hire uh, you know, the English teacher too. <laughs> taught me some of the you know grammar and speakings and etc. But that was one of the just funny story that listening is very important. And still nowadays, I just advise or guide it. For example, a junior designers if they are in the meeting room and brainstorm about the idea, it's really good to listen the others' information first. So you have more advantage to add more idea and full understanding of what the idea was, and then properly react and give a better feedback to others. So that's my recommendation to the design team uh, in that's, our company. That is great. Thanks, Hey Minuk, for coming on the show. I wanted to finish off by asking, like, where can people find you and contact you if they want to ask you something? I think nowadays the LinkedIn is the most common place to contact first. But of course, I have my public emails in LinkedIn or if somebody would ask, then I can share, of course, my email. So the LinkedIn or email is the best place to contact first. Hey, thanks so much, Mino, for coming on the show. Talk to you soon again, man. Yeah, thank you to host this opportunity. And I hope that the information we have discussed will be shared and used to help the other designers and the people in the games industry, hopefully. Yeah, I'm going to blast this all over the internet, so no worries. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks, man. Bye-bye. Thanks again, Minu, for coming on the show. Please remember to follow or subscribe to our show so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. Also, we have a weekly newsletter going out with links to our latest articles and sharing some more details regarding founding games companies. You can subscribe to that at EliteGameDevelopers.com. 
See you next time. Bye-bye.